Around eight years or so ago, I was acquainted with a young pastor. We were working on a church staff together, didn't know each other super well. He was preaching occasionally, wasn't the main one. All that to say that he did something that pastors really shouldn't do. Chucked his message with about a day's notice to write something, especially in response to the latest national tragedy. In this case, a shooting. And this person, who is theologically from a very specific group called Neo-Calvinists, which I note in case you want to nerd out and research it, went on to give a message that effectively diminished the pain of the event by saying it was part of God's plan. We don't understand it, but God is good. And this seems bad. Yeah, sure. But, but don't worry. I mean, and this was his reasoning. If God was willing to kill Jesus, then a few regular humans dying, you know, it might not be as big of a thing because, and here's the word, sovereignty. Because of sovereignty, by which that specific little group means that God has power over all things, all people, thoughts, events, sovereignty. And I think that's a pretty significant barrier, actually, to reading the story of the Bible well and to coming to a place of peace with a major and valid question in our faith. Why does so much bad stuff happen? The expanded version of that question, though, the invisible script that is between those words, is actually, since God is sovereign, and usually, even if we don't mean to, we link up with that definition. If God is sovereign in this particular way, then why doesn't God intervene to change all these things? And here's my question for us. Is that version of sovereignty a Christmassy answer to suffering? Is that a Christmassy answer to suffering? And what if God isn't sovereign like that? Or what if other choices God has made or other attributes of who God is are also at play in times of suffering, crisis, or tragedy? Now, if a person adheres to this definition of sovereignty, then the whole Christmas narrative gets filtered through it. Jesus's arrival is a demonstration of this kind of sovereignty, and therefore all that happens in the Gospels is God's plan. So to tip my own hand here, what if instead God is boundaried by God's own choice to give people agency, to let them make real choices, even choices that cause harm? And so that would mean instead that Christmas is the beginning of God with us in our sense that this is not okay. The part of Matthew's gospel we'll be in today, it's a good case study for the limitations of that definition of sovereignty. Despite Matthew's insistence that Jesus is king of a very real, eternal, and more powerful kingdom, despite Matthew's view that God was at work through the larger story of the people from Egypt to exile in prophecies that weren't even originally about the Messiah, which is kind of one of his things to do, when it comes to neo-Calvinist sovereignty, that everything that happens is God's plan. I don't think that's what Matthew saw. I think Matthew saw God intentionally enter places where people feel powerless and transform them with presence. I think Matthew saw God in Jesus, possessing all power, but never overpowering, not even for the sake of the plan. This is a king who is so committed to the dignity and agency of the human subjects who might live in the kingdom 
that only those who accept an invitation join in. It's actually a really poor expansion plan if you think about it. I mean, he could stand to take a few notes from Caesar on how one actually scales out your empire, but nevertheless, let's dive in. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now after they, that is the wise men, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus is meant to fulfill a role as a new Moses. So Moses grew up in Egypt, left for a season and returned again, and then out of Egypt rescued all of Israel from enslavement. Jesus is meant to fulfill that archetype, and that's part of what Matthew sees in this time of Jesus as a refugee. Now continuing on in verse 16, when Herod saw he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under according to the time he had learned from the wise men. This would be a smaller town, so about 30 boys, maybe a little less, were murdered. And I mention it because it explains why something this heinous isn't recorded in some other source. It wasn't large-scale enough for the ancient world to have cross-referenced it. Now, this is also entirely in keeping with Herod's character, by the way. He had his sons murdered so that they wouldn't take power from him as well as his wife, for the same reason. He gave orders, and by all accounts, they weren't followed. But nevertheless, as he was dying, he gave orders to kill all the leaders of the area so that when he died, people would be crying at his funeral. This is not a problem for Herod. And this is what sin looks like. It looks like not just a man who makes these decisions, but also a worldview that power is everything and people are props to get and retain it. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15 here. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Stanley Hauerwas writes, Perhaps no event in the gospel more determinatively challenges the sentimental depiction of Christmas than the death of these children. Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of tyrants. And Matthew just describes it all. It just happens. And he doesn't try to give it some sort of silver lining because it's the plan. It's there because this is our world. It happened because this is what power-hungry tyrants do, then and now. Though now they might manage to do it more subtly by, say, polluting your home so cancer rates spike or food won't grow, or or making the healthcare system such that maternal mortality rates spike for only your ethnic community. But it doesn't change the nature of what happens. Here's where Matthew splits from John Calvin, or at least from John Calvin's contemporary interpreters who are now the neo-Calvinists. See, Matthew sees the kingdom of heaven as an alternative to the kingdoms of earth. Matthew sees Jesus as an alternative to kings like Herod. But he's not surprised by the terrible, evil things that those kingdoms and their kings create. 
God in Christ is coming among the pain those kingdoms inflict and saying to the victims of them, God hasn't forgotten you. This isn't the end. Now, there are those whose idea of sovereignty or God's plan basically amounts to, it's okay because these kids died for Jesus. Nope. It's not okay. And they died because power-wielding, deeply selfish people did something evil. It's not okay. And that is why Jesus is here. To begin the remaking of the world so that everything realigns with God's goodness. Jesus came to inaugurate, to begin the kingdom of God among us here on earth. And he was and is king of that kingdom. When we see what Matthew saw, here is our king. Then the chaotic, terrible, terrifying reactions around Jesus make a little more sense. Herod's murderous rage because a king is threatening his throne. And of course, later on in Jesus's life being executed by rulers, both religious priests and Roman governors, It was a reaction to the threat of a different kingdom, a different king. This is the natural consequence of an unnatural world where people clamor for as much power as they can. How Jesus comes matters. And the methodology of the kingdom's arrival reflects the character of the king. The manner in which a kingdom expands reflects the character of the ruler. And so even in the work of healing all of sin's effects, God will respect the agency of those who are creating the wounds. And so I ask again, is sovereignty a Christmassy answer to suffering? I don't think so. Instead, consider Stanley Hauerwas again. He says, the gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is not a consolation for those whose children are murdered. Rather, Those who would follow and worship Jesus are a challenge to those who would kill children. The gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, is not a consolation for those whose children are murdered. Rather, those who would follow and worship Jesus are a challenge to those who would kill children. I think we sometimes make sin too small. We narrow it down to a person's individual choices, sinful or saintly, and then we're stunned by its outworkings. We just never expected it to do all that it can do. We also sometimes make sovereignty too specific. That God is always the invisible puppet master behind the events of the world. But sin is a comprehensive force of destruction. And God really truly hands power over to humanity. Really truly grants agency and choice to them. God's been doing it since creation. And God will continue to do it as the way in which this kingdom expands. People are invited in, but they're never forced. And you can't use the tools of sinful empires in order to expand a godly kingdom. Or try a different image on for size for a moment. Call back, if you will, the imagery from Jeremiah of paths, if you happen to remember when we were there. The image in that book is that God would give people the choice to walk down one of two paths, like a fork in the road. One path leads to God and to life and to flourishing for the world. The other path where a person seeks protection or provision from some other no-god, it will inevitably lead to injustice and destruction and death. But the deal is that the path leads where it leads. Those who walk it make the world they make. And if we have a beef with God, it isn't really that God didn't stop that other path from leading where it led, but rather that God would let people choose which way they walked at all. Dignifying people with choice and agency 
It's core to God's relationship with humanity. And in Matthew, it will mean that the kingdom of God is invitational, but never coerced. In the rest of the world, it will mean that people can build other kingdoms around other values that will bring terrible, awful things to reality. So for Herod, this is where the path to power leads. You kill babies. For God, this is where the path to life leads. Submitting yourself to the tumultuous experience of being a refugee, fleeing for your life with a price on your head. That construct of sovereignty, of God puppeting us invisibly from heaven so that every detail of history is God's plan and action, it's not actually a tenet of our faith. It's an add-on by some medieval European men who then backfill the story of scripture to make it fit. Nowadays, it's bolstered by a few celebrity pastors with really good social media skills. And so as we close, I don't have a different definition of sovereignty for us. I don't think we should redefine it. I think we should practice ditching it. God's very character is generous and dignifying of humanity. God will not coerce people into loving or following God. And given those pillars, terrible things will happen at the hands of those who choose to walk a different path. God does not actually get God's way all the time because God won't violate the agency given to us. It's part of how we're loved. At Christmas, Christ then begins his life in a role that will be incredibly important to who he is, the suffering servant, suffering as a refugee, suffering with the world, suffering as part of what it means to come among us. And Christ's faithfulness as suffering servant is what ultimately will bring life and healing to all things. As I close, I'm going to read from N.T. Wright, who says, No point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be where the pain is. And Jesus, we thank you that you are. Amen.